Book Two, Chapter One, Part One of The Circular Study. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Circular Study by Anna Catherine Green. Book Two, Remember Evelyn. Chapter One, The Secret of the Cadwalladers. Part One. Thomas Cadwallader suggested rather than told his story. We dare not imitate him in this, nor would it be just to your interest to relate these facts with all the baldness and lack of detail imposed upon this unhappy man by the hurry and anxiety of the occasion. Remarkable tragedies have their birth in remarkable facts, and as such facts are but the outcome of human passions, we must enter into those passions if we would understand either the facts or their appalling consequences. In this case the first link of the chain which led to Felix Adams's violent death was forged before the birth of the woman who struck him. We must begin, then, with almost forgotten days, and tell the story, as her pleader did, from the standpoint of Felix and Thomas Cadwallader. Thomas Cadwallader, now called Adams, never knew his mother. She died in his early infancy. Nor could he be said to have known his father, having been brought up in France by an old Scotch lawyer, who, being related to his mother, sometimes spoke of her, but never of his father, till Thomas had reached his fifteenth year. Then he put certain books into his hands with this remarkable injunction. Here are romances, Thomas. Read them, but remember that none of them, no matter how thrilling in matter or effect, will ever equal the story of your father's bitterly wronged and suffering life. My father, he cried, tell me about him I have never heard. But his guardian, satisfied with an illusion which he knew must bear fruit in the extremely susceptible nature of this isolated boy, said no more that day, and Thomas turned to the books. But nothing after that could ever take his mind away from his father. He had scarcely thought of him for years, but now that that father had been placed before him in the light of a wronged man, he found himself continually hunting back in the deepest recesses of his memory for some long-forgotten recollection of that father's features calculated to restore his image to his eyes. Sometimes he succeeded in this, or thought he did, but this image, if image it was, was so speedily lost in a sensation of something strange and awe-compelling enveloping it, that he found himself more absorbed by the intangible impressions associated with this memory than by the memory itself. What were these impressions, and in what had they originated? In vain he tried to determine. They were as vague as they were persistent. A stretch of darkness— two bars of orange light, always shining, always the same, black lines against these bars, like the tops of distant gables, an inner thrill, a vague affright, a rush about him as of a swooping wind, all this came with his father's image, only to fade away with it, leaving him troubled, uneasy, and perplexed. Finding these impressions persistent, 
and receiving no explanation of them in his own mind, he finally asked his guardian what they meant. But that guardian was as ignorant as himself on this topic, and satisfied with having roused the boy's imagination, confined himself to hints, dropped now and then with a judiciousness which proved the existence of a deliberate purpose, of some duty which awaited him on the other side of the water, a duty which would explain his long exile from his only parent, and for which he must fit himself, by study and the acquirement of such accomplishments as render a young man a positive power in society, whether that society be of the old world or the new. He showed his shrewdness in thus dealing with this pliable and deeply affectionate nature, from this time forth Thomas felt himself leading a life of mystery and interest. To feel himself appointed for a work whose unknown character only heightened its importance gave point to every effort now made by this young man, and lent to his studies that vague touch of romance which made them a delight, and him an adept in many things he might otherwise have cared little about. At eighteen he was a graduate from the Sorbonne, and a musical virtuoso as well. He could fence, ride, and carry off the prize in games requiring physical prowess as well as mental fitness. He was, in fact, a prodigy in many ways, and was so considered by his fellow students. He, however, was not perfect. He lacked social charm, and in so far failed of being the complete gentleman. This he was made to realize in the following way. One morning his guardian came to him with a letter from his father, in which, together with some words of commendation for his present attainments, that father expressed a certain dissatisfaction with his general manner, as being too abrupt and self-satisfied with those of his own sex, and much too timid and deprecatory with those of the other. Thomas felt the criticism and recognized its justice, but how had his father, proved by this letter to be no longer a myth, become acquainted with defects which Thomas instinctively felt could never have attracted the attention of his far-from-polished guardian? His questions on this point elicited a response that confounded him. He was not the only son of his father. He had a brother living— and this brother, older than himself by some twenty years or more, had just been in Paris, where, in all probability, he had met him, talked with him, and perhaps pressed his hand. It was a discovery calculated to deepen the impression already made upon Thomas's mind. Only a purpose of the greatest importance could account for so much mystery. What could it be? What was he destined to do or say or be? He was not told, but while awaiting enlightenment, he was resolved not to be a disappointment to the two anxious souls who watched his career so eagerly and extracted from him such perfection. He consequently moderated his manner, and during the following year acquired by constant association with the gilded youth about him that indescribable charm of the perfect gentleman which he was led to believe would alone meet with the approval of those he now felt bound to please. At the end of the year he found himself a finished man of the world. 
How truly so he began to realize when he noted the blush with which his presence was hailed by women and the respect shown him by men of his own stamp. In the midst of the satisfaction thus experienced, his guardian paid him a final visit. "'You are now ready,' said he, "'for your father's summons. It will come in a few weeks. Be careful, then. Form no ties you cannot readily break, for once recalled from France you are not likely to return here.' What your father's purpose concerning you may be I do not know, but it is no ordinary one. You will have money, a well-appointed home, family affection, all that you have hitherto craved in vain, and in return you will carry solace to a heart which has awaited your healing touch for twenty years. So much I am ordered to say. The rest you will hear from your father's own lips." aroused encouraged animated by the wildest hopes the most extravagant anticipations thomas awaited his father's call with feverish impatience and when it came hastened to respond to it by an immediate voyage to america this was some six months previous to the tragedy in blank street on his arrival at the wharf in new york he was met not by his brother as he had every reason to expect but by a messenger in whose face evil tidings were apparent before he spoke. Thomas was soon made acquainted with them. His father, who he now learned was called Cadwallader, he himself had always been called Adams, was ill, possibly dying. He must therefore hasten, and being provided with minute instructions as to his way, took the train at once for a small village in northern Pennsylvania. All that followed was a dream to him. He was hurried through the night with the motion of the ship still in his blood to meet what? He dared not think. He swam in a veritable nightmare. Then came a stop, a hurrying from the train, a halt on a platform reeking with rain, for the night was stormy, a call from someone to hurry, the sight of a panting horse steaming under a lamp whose blowing flame he often woke in after nights to see, a push from a persuasive hand, then a ride over a country road the darkness of which seemed impenetrable, and finally the startling vision of an open door with a Meg Merrilies of a woman standing in it, holding a flaming candle in her hand. The candle went out while he looked at it, and left only a voice to guide him, a voice which, in tones shaken by chill or feeling, he could not tell which, cried eagerly, "'Is that you, laddie? Come away in, come away in, dinna heed the rain. The maester's been crying on ye all day. I'm glad you're no o'er late.' He got down, followed the voice, and, stumbling up a step or two, entered a narrow door, which was with difficulty held open behind him, and which swung to with a loud noise the minute he crossed the threshold. This, or the dreariness of the place in which he found himself, disturbed him greatly. Bare floors, stained walls, meagre doorways, and a common pine staircase, lighted only by the miserable candle which the old woman had relit, were these the appointments of the palatial home he had been led to expect? 
these the surroundings this the abode of him who had exacted such perfection on his part and to satisfy whose standard he had devoted years of hourly daily effort in every department of art and science a sickening revolt seized him aggravated by the smiles of the old woman who dipped and courtesied before him in senile delight she may have divined his feelings for drawing him inside she relieved him of his overcoat crying all the while with an extravagant welcome more repulsive than all the rest oh the fine laddie would your poor mother could see you the new bonny and clever know your father's bernavau all mother laddie all mother the room was no better than the hall where is my father he asked authoritatively striving to keep down his strong repugnance dinna ye hear him he's crying on ye poor man he's wearying to see ye hear him he could scarcely hear her the driving rain the swish of some great boughs against the house the rattling of casements and doors and the shrieking of the wind in the chimney made all other sounds well-nigh inaudible yet as he listened he seemed to catch the accents of a far-off voice calling now wistfully now imperatively thomas thomas and thrilled with an emotion almost superstitious in its intensity he moved hastily toward the staircase but the old woman was there before him nay nay she cried come in by and eat something first but thomas shook his head it seemed to him at that moment as if he never could eat or sleep again the disillusion was so bitter his disappointment so keen ye will nay then haste ye haste ye but it's a pity you wouldna hae eaten something ye'll need it laddie ye'll need it thomas thomas wailed the voice he tore himself away he forced himself to go upstairs following the cry which at every moment grew louder at the top he cast a final glance below the old woman stood at the stairfoot shading the candle from the draught with a hand that shook with something more than age she was gazing after him in vague affright and with the shadow of this fear darkening her weazen face formed a picture from which he was glad to escape Plunging on, he found himself before a window whose small panes dripped and groaned under a rain that was fast becoming a torrent. Chilled by the sight, he turned toward the door faintly outlined beside it, and in the semi-darkness seized an old-fashioned latch rattling in the wind that permeated every passageway, and softly raised it. Instantly the door fell back, and two eyes blazing with fever and that fire of the soul of which fever is the mere physical symbol greeted him from the midst of a huge bed drawn up against the opposite wall then two arms rose and the moaning cry of thomas thomas changed to a shout and he knew himself to be in the presence of his father falling on his knees in speechless emotion he grasped the wasted hands held out to him such a face rugged though it was and far from fulfilling the promise held out to him in his dreams could not but move any man 
as he gazed into it and pressed the hands in which the life-blood only seemed to linger for this last this only embrace all his filial instincts were aroused and he forgot the common surroundings the depressing rain his own fatigue and bitter disappointment in his lifelong craving for love and family recognition but the old man on whose breast he fell showed other emotions than those by which he was himself actuated it was not an embrace he craved but an opportunity to satisfy an almost frenzied curiosity as to the appearance and attributes of the son who had grown to manhood under other eyes pushing him gently back he bade him stand in the light of the lamp burning on a small pine table and surveyed him as it were from the verge of his own fast-failing life with moans of mingled pain and weariness amid which thomas thought he heard the accents of a supreme satisfaction meanwhile in thomas himself as he stood there the sense of complete desolation filled his breast almost to bursting to have come home for this to find a father only to be weighed in the scales of that father's judgment to be admired instead of loved as he realized his position and listened to the shrieking of the wind and rain he felt that the wail of the elements but echoed the cry of his own affections thus strangled in their birth indeed the sensations of that moment made so deep an impression upon him that he was never afterward able to hear a furious gust of wind or rain without the picture rising up before him of this great hollow room with the trembling figure of his father struggling in the grasp of death and holding it at bay while he gauged with worldly wisdom the physical mental and moral advantages of the son so long banished and so lately restored to his arms a rush of impetuous words followed by the collapse of his father's form upon the pillow showed that the examination was over rushing forward he grasped again that father's hands but soon shrank back stunned by what he heard and the prospect it opened before him a few of his father's words will interpret the rest they came in a flood and among others thomas caught these the grace of god be thanked our efforts have not failed handsome strong noble in look and character we could ask nothing more hope for nothing more my revenge will succeed john poindexter will find that he has a heart and that that heart can be wrung i do not need to live to see it for me it exists now it exists here and he struck his breast with hands that seemed to have reserved their last strength for this supreme gesture john poindexter who was he it was a new name to thomas venturing to say so he reeled under the look he received from his father's eyes you do not know who john poindexter is and what he has done to me and mine they have kept their promise well too well but god will accord me strength to tell you what has been left unsaid by them he would not bring me up to this hour to let me perish before you have heard the story destined to make you the avenger of innocence upon that enemy of your race 
Listen, Thomas, with the hand of death encircling my heart I speak, and if the story find you cold, but it will not. Your name is Cadwallader, and it will not. Constrained by passions such as he had never imagined even in dreams, Thomas fell upon his knees. He could not listen otherwise. His father, gasping for breath, fixed him with his hollow eyes, in which the last flickering flames of life flared up in fitful brightness. "'Thomas!' The pause was brief. "'You are not my only child.' "'I know it,' fell from Thomas's white lips. "'I have a brother. His name is Felix.' The father shook his head with a look suggestive of impatience. "'Not him, not him,' he cried. "'A sister, a sister who died before you were born. "'Beautiful, good, with a voice like an angel's, and a heart. "'She should be standing by my side to-day, "'and she would have been if, if he... "'But none of that. I have no breath to waste.' facts facts just facts afterward may come emotions hatred denunciation not now this is my story thomas end of book two chapter one part one